Well, good morning. We are almost to the end of the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, probably written towards the end of the first century, uh, meaning around maybe 90 AD. So if you think about a timeline, and we'll just do a quick timeline here. I love timelines. I love maps. They're horrible, but I love them. And so here we go. So let's do, just to kind of orient everyone, because, you know, <clears throat> you might be familiar with, like, what happened in 2015? <laughs> what happened, you know, 9-11, that was, that was 2001. Well, we're talking thousands of years ago, so the, the time scale tends to get a little tricky with people, and it's just kind of hard to imagine exactly how long ago we're talking. So if you talk about 1 AD, there was no zero. <clears throat> And here, all the way to today, is it 2020? Gosh, I feel old. So this is about 1,000 AD. <clears throat> this would be about 500. Oh, this is going to be a small one. 250. So we're really talking. <clears throat> if, if Jesus was born, we think somewhere around 4 BC. Um, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it was around the year 1. Somewhere around the year 33. Between the year 30 and 33 is Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> And I probably, this is probably not far back enough. Jesus' ministry. The Gospels are all written later in the first century. So first century meaning the first hundred years. Gospel of John is written last. We're pretty sure that this was the last Gospel written. Good morning. And so, Gospel of John is written after the so-called Synoptic Gospels. What are the Synoptic Gospels, Ken? Those are the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are very similar in their record. That's it. So synoptic, meaning kind of, kind of the same vision. Synoptic, same view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all seem to use similar sources for their material. Not all of the material is, is copies, but, but all three of them tend to have very similar stories. They take, take very similar viewpoints. They may have used some similar source material. Um, John is all by itself. It, the author does not seem to have used the same source material that Matthew, Mark, and Luke used. Um, he seems to be an eyewitness based on his own testimony. <clears throat> and we'll get to that at the end of the book. But um, it's obvious through reading this that the author is probably aware of the synoptics which came before him. Um, but he's trying to make a different gospel here, focused on the, the divinity of Christ. And... <clears throat> Um, the eternity of Christ, the kind of the pre-eternal Christ, and maybe in some ways refuting what had become by the end of the first century a, a cult in Christianity called Gnosticism. And we're not going to get into any of that today, but just suffice it to say that uh, John takes a very different viewpoint from the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels. Where are we today? We are in chapter 18, and so I do encourage uh, everyone to consider reading. You, you don't have to. It's all volunteer. Um, but usually I ask people to consider reading different sections. We go through those, and then we talk about them. And I want to jump right in today. We are done with the Passover meal. We are done with um, most of the what we call the discourse of Christ on the night before he is, he is crucified. And now we are at his arrest. So let's pick it up. Chapter 18, verses 1. Let's just do 1 to 11. We'll start there. Um, when Jesus finished praying, he went with his followers across the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and Jesus and his followers went into it. Judas knew where this place was because Jesus met there often with his followers. Judas was the one who turned against Jesus. 
So Judas came there with a group of soldiers and some guards from the leading priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Knowing everything that would happen to him, Jesus went out and asked, Who is it that you are looking for? They answered, Jesus from Nazareth. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, the one who turned against Jesus, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they moved back and fell to the ground. Jesus asked them again, Who is it that you are looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. So if you are looking for me, let the others go. This happened so that the words Jesus said before would come true. I have not lost any of the ones you gave me. Simon Peter, who had a sword, pulled it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back. Shouldn't I drink the cup that my father gave me? So we have a lot to get in here. First, I want to make a very, a very important point about eyewitness testimony. Now, we are all cultured, modern, enlightened people, and we understand um, maybe the value and some of the drawbacks of what we call eyewitness testimony. Looking at something from, and, and maybe I'll just pick on a news story, and, and I hate to use 9-11, I brought that up earlier. It's probably a bad example, but I want you to think about... <clears throat> In the days and weeks and months after the terrible tragedy of 9-11, there were a lot of reports that came out about what happened on that day. <clears throat> now, aside from all of the kooks and the people who had conspiracy theories and the people who were making stuff up, I want you to think about maybe some of the more quote, legitimate media reports and, and, and um, people reporting on what they had seen on that day. I want you to think about that for a minute. <clears throat> If you were to read any single public publication, you know, what I would call a legitimate, um, maybe kind of more authorized uh, account of, of what had happened on that day from various sources, let's say you were to ask four different sources what they had seen on that day, okay? One, two, three, and four. And again, discounting the kooks and the crazies and the, and the people that, that had their own conspiracy theories, the people who were actually there and saw what had happened on 9-11, both in New York and in Washington, D.C. And let's say each one of these, these sources is like 10 people who were on the ground at the time. Did any one of these people or groups of people see the exact same things? No, there's no way, right? We are all human beings. We have limited sight and, and vision. And, and some people, if you were to think about it, some people were in buildings next to the buildings attacked. Some people were in the streets. Some people were blocks away. Some people were in boats. Some people were in airplanes. Every person had something to contribute that was part of the story, okay? <clears throat> so here's some, some of the story. Here's some, some, some more of the story. So everyone you ask is going gonna, is gonna to give you some pieces of the story. Think of it like a puzzle. <clears throat> now, what, what the government had to do and what the military had to do and what you and I had to do over the next few years, really, and it was years, was to take all of these eyewitness accounts that were recorded within the first hours, I mean minutes and hours and, and, and to some degree days, after this had happened and put together what we really think happened, okay? Now, how many of you watched the news on the day that 9-11 happened? Right? Oh, bless your hearts. Bless your young hearts. You actually, you're thank thankfully spared from that. How many people knew exactly what had happened as soon as they started watching the news? 
Now, you may have known what had happened in the sense that these buildings were blowing up, right, or being hit. Even in the beginning, people weren't even sure that planes had done it. Now, remember, of course, I don't want to bring up all of this. Was a little, like a little Cessna or something. Was yeah, even in, the, it was, even in the beginning, it wasn't even, they weren't right about that. Now, think about what had happened. Now, now, what I mean from that is you interpreting the eyewitness accounts. Over time, it becomes clear that the people who were actually eyewitnesses had legitimate factual accounts that they were, com they, were, they were contributing to this big puzzle that ends up being, you know, the whole story. But just keep in mind that every person had a piece to contribute, okay? And over time, we get enough eyewitnesses and we get enough accounts we put together and we finally have what we think is a clear account of what happened on that day. This is no different, <laughs> well, it is a little different, from what happened to the life of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus didn't fly planes into buildings, and again, that's why I hate to use that analogy. I should probably come up with a better one. <clears throat> but if you think about it over time, the life of Jesus happened in a period where there wasn't a lot of writing, there wasn't any TV, there wasn't Twitter and video cameras. There was you, human beings, you and me, people just like you and me, who had seen the acts and the teachings of Jesus Christ, Jesus from Nazareth on this earth in the first century. Over time, it took time for the full account of Jesus' life to, to become apparent, to, to put all this together. Now remember, in, in the first century, we don't have the ability of technology to go and get all these eyewitness accounts. I mean, if you think about it, the fact that within a few days, within a few days, we were pretty clear we knew what had happened on that day, on 9-11. Okay? In the first century, we didn't have all of the technology that we have now, and it took years to really assemble that. Okay? So I want you to think about that. I, there's a reason why I'm, I'm pushing this right now. Why are there four Gospels? Why do they say slightly different things? Well, they say slightly different things because different people had different perspectives. Eyewitnesses had certain perspectives to Jesus. Eyewitnesses to eyewitnesses had certain perspectives. It took time for this whole puzzle to come together. So if you want to think about this in the, in the case of the Gospels, you know, maybe Matthew has this view. Maybe, <clears throat> let me just do this. I think this would be better. Maybe Mark has this view. Mark has a view that overlaps Matthew, but he also has his own material. <clears throat> Luke... Luke has some overlap with the other two, but he also has his own material. John seems to have taken, at least in his published form, his own account. Now, one question you might ask is, well, why didn't John have any overlap with the others? Well, he did. John absolutely did have some overlap, and, and it's, it's wrong to say he didn't. He certainly had overlap with some of the events and the accounts and the testimony that Jesus was making, but a lot of the material is his own. <clears throat> Another thing you have to keep in mind is the timing of when these were written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written much earlier in the first century. We think by the time John has written his gospel, he already knows about the other three gospels. They're already being circulated. They're already being published and, and, and they're being spread throughout the Mediterranean. It's obvious here that the author does not want to rehash a lot of that. Remember, writing is expensive and difficult in the first century. It's very expensive to buy papyrus, to hire a scribe, and to write all of this out. 
the last thing you're going to want to do is rehash a bunch of stuff that's been written. So, so I think, and I think other scholars take the view that the reason you don't have a lot of, of repeated material in John is he's got his own message to say and he doesn't want to spend a lot of time rehashing it. When you read John chapter 18, if you are familiar with the synoptics, you may have, you may have noticed a couple of things that seem to be missing from the account of Jesus' arrest. The first, and which happens very quickly, after verse 1, is the Olivet Discourse seems to be missing. <clears throat> now, what is the Olivet Discourse? I like to draw maps. Oh, thankfully, I have new people here today that can watch <laughs> the horror of my map making. Let's say this is Jerusalem in the, in the first century. Now, this is early in the first century because after Jesus dies in the second half, Jerusalem's walls are actually greatly expanded and the city comes to encompass the area where we think that Jesus was crucified, this area called Golgotha, which is right about here. But in the early part of the first century, this is what we think the city looked like. Again, I'm going to make a huge caveat here. <laughs> we have no maps from Jerusalem in the first century. We have not dug up a, a handy uh, <clears throat> Google map <laughs> that said, oh, here is the layout of the city in the first century. Here's where everything was. No, 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 it's not like that. What we have is descriptions of the city from first century authors who were contemporaneous with the city talking about what was there and generally what it looked like. But again, it wasn't measurements and, and survey maps and anything like that. The other thing we have is some archaeological evidence. But you have to remember in the 2,000 years since Jerusalem was, you know, was around back then, the city has been destroyed twice. It has been rebuilt and it has been lived in for 2,000 years. And, and as you all know now, the city looks very different than it did back then. And in fact, Jerusalem today is like a city of a million people. If you were to Google Earth this today, this was the city in the first century. Jerusalem today probably fills this entire wall or more with people. Okay, It's been built on. It's been built over. And so it's really hard to reconstruct. So the point I'm trying to make is don't get too hung up on the exactitude of where I've put everything. You should never do that. <clears throat> but, but what are we talking? So we think here's the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt after, after the Babylonian conquest. We have the temple complex. This was greatly expanded by Herod the Great. And we'll talk about the Herods here in a minute too. We have the temple complex. We have this fortress called the Antonia Fortress, which was probably somewhere on the north or northwest flank. And this is, this is where guards would be stationed, probably to guard the temple, um, probably to guard the city. Um, uh, certainly a garrison, we think, of Roman soldiers was stationed permanently here because of all the unrest that goes on in Jerusalem. Then we have the upper city. Folks, the separation between the rich and the poor was just as apparent back then as today, probably much more so. If you were rich and you were part of the aristocracy and you were wealthy and important, you lived in the upper city. You probably never went to the lower city, okay? The lower city is like where I live today. <laughs> you know, it's like Ankeny. It's not like Ankeny, but um, well, maybe it is. I don't know. It's certainly not the upper city, right? This is this is the Beverly Hills of Jerusalem of the time. Okay, <clears throat> this is where the, the wealthy lived. Probably a palace called the Hasmonean Palace, where the kings would have, have reigned in the centuries before Christ. Herod the Great rebuilt the temple. He also built his own gigantic palace, which Josephus, the first century historian, says was wondrous. Wondrous. 
This is probably where Pontius Pilate stayed when he was in town. Remember, Pontius Pilate. Pontius meaning from the sea and Pilate meaning armed with a spear. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor appointed to Judea in the, in the years roughly around 26 to 36 AD. He lives in another town called Caesarea Maritima on the coast, a fantastic Greek city, very wealthy. He doesn't want to stay here if he doesn't have to. He's probably in town for the Passover celebration. And with him, hundred, probably at least 100,000 pilgrims who have come for Passover. So the city has swelled in size for the Passover. He's probably staying at Herod the Great's palace. Herod the Great is dead, of course, by this point. His son, Herod Antipas, or Antipater, meaning Herod in place of my father, <clears throat> is probably in town too, according to the Synoptic Gospels, but he ain't staying at Herod's palace. I'll just tell you that right now. Herod's palace is way too nice. Pilate is staying there. Herod is probably resigned to staying at the Hasmonean palace. Herod Antipas is the ruler of Galilee, which we will talk about in a minute why that's important. Herod Antipas is not in charge of Judea. That's Pilate. Okay. Lower city, we think... This is, this is a bit of a tangent, but we think the Last Supper was held in the upper city, in an, in an upper room in the upper city, maybe in the home of John Mark's mother. Who is John Mark? We think he is the author of the book of Mark, not a disciple, but a follower, a very young man at this point. We think maybe a young man, maybe even a very young teenager, this is speculation um, because after Jesus dies, the disciples go back to John Mark's house, and that is recorded in Acts. We think they went back to the house and had the Last Supper. And anyway, long story short is that was almost certainly the upper city too because we know it was a house that could hold a lot of people. Lower city, poor people. City of David, this is the original city of Jerusalem that the Jebusites owned. David conquered and he, um, and he expanded and he built his little temple up here, which at that well, he didn't build the temple, his son Solomon did, but that even then was even just a very small area here. This is greatly expanded now. Gehenna Valley, the Valley of Burning Trash, where <clears throat> if you were to, to read the Old Testament, even some New Testament, they talk about hell, they talk about Gehenna, because this is where followers of Molech, the fire god, would sacrifice their children, burning alive, to the god Molech, so they called this the, the Valley of, of Burning Trash, Gehenna. This is the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, again, these, these are not rivers, but in the winter, you have to think in a Mediterranean climate, in the summer it's dry and hot, there's, there's no water here. The water comes from springs. But in the winter when it rains, these valleys flood with water. But, uh, but now it's probably dry. Here's the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane. What does Gethsemane mean? Do we know what that means? In Aramaic, it means the oil press. The oil press. Why would it be called the oil press? Well, because the Mount of Olives was full of olive groves. And at the base of that mountain, there was a production facility for harvesting the olives. They would have crushed the olives here and turned it into olive oil, which was a huge commodity in the region of the period. And so we think um, Jesus and his disciples depart from their room. They, in the middle of the night, they go across the valley to the Mount of Olives to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. 
which may have been a walled garden where Jesus prays with his disciples. You remember, in the synoptics, there's this whole thing called the Olivet Discourse. Essentially, it is a end-of-the-world discussion. And if you read the synoptics, you read this very powerful, scary account that Jesus has about the end of the world. The end is coming. The temple is going to be destroyed. I'm going to be destroyed. My body, you know, he's saying I will be destroyed in a rise in three days. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's all the Revelation stuff kind of compressed. It seems as though John has skipped over this. If you go from verse 1 to 2, it seems as though you could insert, put all of that discourse here. Okay, so I'm just making the point here. Again, John knows this has already been reported on. He, he knows that it's, it's pretty clear what has happened. He's not going to rehash it. He's going to fast forward. Second thing we see here is, you might be saying to yourself, well, I read Judas shows up, right? Okay, so Jesus has prayed. He's ready to take on, essentially take this cup from, from God to, to be sacrificed on the cross. <clears throat> and then it's time for his betrayal. All of a sudden, the guards show up, right, with Judas. Judas comes to the grove with a detachment of soldiers. This is interesting because you have to keep in mind the Jews were in charge of the temple and largely in charge of the religious functioning of the people of Jerusalem and of Judea. They weren't really allowed to have a military, right? This is the Roman Empire, folks. You're not allowed to have your own military, okay? But they were allowed to have temple guards, people who were kind of in charge of enforcing what I would say law and order, both in the temple and religious law and order in town. <clears throat> so these were kind of thugs in a way that kind of um, carried out the will of the religious leadership of Jerusalem, okay? But it says here a detachment of soldiers and, so, and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. So it seems as though what has happened is a, is a group of people have shown up from, uh, from the temple, right? The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people who run the temple, the high priest and his people, have sent a band of thugs to arrest Jesus. But the fact that it says a group of soldiers kind of suggests that the Romans have allowed a detachment of soldiers to go with them. And so this is a little controversial. We know that there was a garrison of, of Roman soldiers at the fortress. They may have taken a few of them along with them. That's all, that's all I'm trying to get at here. <clears throat> but you may say to yourself, well, wait a minute. I thought that Judas kissed Jesus. Now, you remember in the synoptics, the story is that Judas told the soldiers and, and, the, and the, um, the Jewish uh, kind of thugs who came with him, you will know Jesus because I will kiss him. I will give him a kiss and you will know that that is the man that you were looking for. Now, remember, these, some of these people didn't know who Jesus was physically. They hadn't seen his face. So, you know, they wouldn't know him from Adam, so to speak. Well, in this discourse here, you can see that that kiss is missing. I told you that I'm he. So, so basically, Jesus comes out of the garden voluntarily to, this, to meet this band of soldiers. And Peter goes with him, it looks like. He goes out and he says, who is it you want? He knows who they want. Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I am he. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Now, what I think happened here. Now, you see here, he says, when Jesus says that, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. That's pretty remarkable. They didn't fall on the ground because they were afraid. Why did they fall on the ground? They were awestruck. 
Why would they be awestruck? His purity. Like, when you saw him, you could see his spirit. I mean, you could, it came out of him. What, what, how do you worship God or gods in, in the first century? On the ground. On the ground. You get on your knees, right? You get on the ground and you worship. This suggests that people who were in the detachment of guards recognized and were followers of Jesus. That alone, folks, is huge. If that, is, if that eyewitness account is true, that is huge. Or it even harkens to what Jesus says at the end of the world, you know, mm-hmm. that every knee will bow mm-hmm. and every tongue will confess. I'm like, it could be something like that where, you know, mm-hmm. you can't help but fall on your knees in front of Jesus because right. he is God. You know? I love that. Exactly. exactly. And we know from the crucifixion that one of the guards who crucified him recognized him as the Son of God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, after the miracles of, of kind of the natural elements. It's obvious that there are already people within the soldier community and within the Jewish elite who are already either converts of Jesus or starting to become so. I think what happens here is, again, the the Judas kiss, it happens probably right after verse 9. Again, the author is like, you already know about this. I'm not going to rehash it. I want to tell you the new stuff that you haven't heard. I want you to hear the stuff that hasn't been told yet. Okay. Long story short is, they arrest him. Now, I'm going to stop blabbering here and ask, what do you guys take away from this passage, verses 1 to 11? <laughs> I think it's, I mean, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him, and he is... Like, it's amazing how calm and, like, willing he is just to go through with it. Because that's, I think, everything in you would be screaming to run the other way, (laughs) you know? I mean, it was just before this that he was praying to the point that he was sweating blood. I mean, he was so stressed. Uh So he, a, a calm comes over him that is definitely supernatural. I mean, it's not his human side that's that's in charge right now. Mm. I mean, because his human side was sweating blood. <laughs> his human side was freaking out and knew exactly where he was headed. So, it, I mean, it definitely shows God's presence. And, you know, it, during this time, it, that was what took over. Okay. The hard part is going to be bearing the sins. Mm. This is the easy part. This is the human part. The hard part for him is going to be the actual spiritual side of what's about to happen. The side that we can't see that's going on behind the scenes outside of the words. This is the easy part. That's interesting. It's it's a different way to look at it. I think it makes sense, though. I mean, when he's on the cross and he's like, you know, why have you forsaken me? You know, he, he feels the absence for the first time ever. Because he had to, because he took on all the sin, and he was in the darkness. So it does make full sense that that was the worst thing for him ever, because he, you know, that connection was gone. Seems as though he's reconciled that this is why I'm here. Mm. A couple 
couple chapters ago, he said, <clears throat> you know, a time is coming that I must leave and go be with my father. And he'd, he'd come to terms with that in that prayer time in the garden with the, with the father. You know, he'd, he'd even said, if there's another way, let's do that. But, oh, there's not? Okay. Let's so go. this is great. It, and I, I agree. I, and of course I'm right. <laughs> Jesus, has, Jesus has reconciled himself to this. Had his disciples reconciled themselves to this? No. no. Why? <clears throat> Give me specific evidence that proves that they had not reconciled themselves to this. Attacking the guards. <laughs> I have made a huge point about this, that you have to remember what the Jews of the... Even the Jews of today see their Messiah as... They see their Messiah as what? Who, who is the Messiah to the Jews? Uh, warrior. 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 Leader. Yes. Leader meaning what? Like a war leader. Like they're going to lead them into battle and they're going to... They're going to conquer Rome. They're going to They're going to... They're not just going to conquer Rome. They're going to destroy Rome. Yeah. Okay. The, very, very clear literature in the in the century before Christ and the centuries after that the Jews wanted Rome to be destroyed because they saw them as the ultimate evil in the world. The other part they saw the Messiah as is what? Not just a warrior, but who? The king. The king. And what kind of king? The king that would, he would give, give them back Israel yes. as an autonomous nation. I'll say that. That's fine. Earthly king in the line of who? This is really important. So you have, and again, Jesus keeps trying to tell them, and he has told them, I am not here to destroy Rome. I am not here to cause an armed insurrection. He has been telling his disciples this both subtly and explicitly for three years now. The evidence suggests they still didn't get it. Now the minute that, Je that Jesus says, I'm the guy, what does Peter do? God. <laughs> Let's, it's on, bro. Woo! Right? He pulls his sword and he's like, finally, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting to pull this sword for three years and it is on, bro. He pulls his sword and the first thing he does is take a whack at the first guy in front of him. Okay? What did Peter intend to do to that guy? He intended to cut his head off. Make no mistake about it. Peter was swinging to kill him. What does the guy do? Whoa! Right? Slow-mo, it's like, you know, bullet time. Just barely misses killing the guy. What does Jesus do? What is Jesus do? Tells him to knock it off. What he the blank are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Put like your a sword away. Situation. <laughs> That's right. Put your sword away, right? Now it was a little stronger than that. Put your sword Put your sword away. The first thing he does is he rebukes Peter. Now, <clears throat> shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, I have, to, I have to put myself in Peter's spot right here. He just went from, oh, I'm, I'm, here we go, here we go, ready? Okay, Jesus goes, I'm he, woo, pulls the sword out, let's do it, this is on, bro. Swings, cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus looks at him and goes, what the heck are you doing? You have to put yourself in Peter's place. He's sitting there, adrenaline flowing, blood all over his sword. 
He may not even realize he didn't kill the guy. There's blood. The guy is on the ground. You can bet. You better believe the guy's on the ground. He's covered in blood. And, you know, and he's like, and Jesus is looking at him like, what are you doing? Put your sword away. Peter, in that moment, has to be like, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> well, this comes on the heels of they have the Last Supper. Jesus says, one of you is going to yeah. betray me. And they're all like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Am I going to yes. betray him? And then Peter's like, this is not going to be me. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus is like, hey, before the night's over, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, I'm not going to deny him. This and then he's like, pulling the sword to show, like, look, I'm not going to deny oh, this Jesus. this is so good. This is and so then good. And then he's even more confused because he's like, I'm showing up. I'm like all in. And now Jesus is like, no. And he's like, I don't know what's going on here. You have to think that in that moment, all of the life and passion and love and confidence went out of Peter. Drained as fast as you can imagine. He is sitting there in shock, literally in shock. And if any of the other disciples are witnessing this, and we know that at least one of them was, maybe the author of this book, plus probably the others that woke up during all the commotion from afar, they're probably sitting back a little further in the garden looking at what going They're all like, what the blank just happened? And now they see their savior, their warrior, their king, and their destroyer of Rome being carted off in chains. What the blank is happening? Well, well, and they're not feeling cool. safe anymore because he was, I mean, he was supposed to be the one to defend them. I mean, yeah, Peter was, was willing mm-hmm. to do that because he thought his back was covered. And now they don't have that protection because Safety the protector is gone. is gone. That might explain what we're about to read about Peter. Mm-hmm. One thing about Peter, he, he saw the guards fall down when they, mm-hmm. I am he, yes. and they fell down. And Peter thought, Jesus has control over these guys. Yes. That's what he felt, yeah. but he thought, yes. hey, we can take them because we, you know, yes. Jesus can do whatever. Yes. And he's empowered. He feels empowered. Yeah. Like, dude, yeah. we are yeah. invincible. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, no, we're not going there. Yes. But he's probably heard stories of mm-hmm. when God has conquered in the past, parting of the seas and... All they all know this. They may not be literate, but they've heard the stories. They know all of this. God wins. God smites his enemies. And sometimes, you know, you read Joshua. <laughs> you, you know, you read Numbers. They're like, he really smites his enemies. I think some of this, though, comes back to the years they've spent with Jesus and yes. the control he's taught them and the lesson. I mean, when he told him to stop, he didn't question Jesus. Which you almost would expect, but he just stopped. Mm-hmm. We have to read on because this is this is really important stuff. Let's let's do twelve, and I'm going to go twelve to twenty-seven. Who can read that for me? So the band of soldiers under captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Ananias, uh, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Um, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be uh, expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter uh, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are uh, 
you also are not one of you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a, a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me, uh, uh, what I said to them, they know what I said. Uh, when he said these things, one of the officers standing uh, by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Nias then said, uh, then sent him bound to Caiaphas to the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they uh, said to him, you also, uh, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man who, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter, uh, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. There's a lot to unpackage here. Yeah. First thing I want to talk about here is this confusion about high priests. Now, bear with me. And again, I, we're going to cover a lot of material today, and I, and I get that. If, if we need to go back, we can look at the video again. I can certainly talk about this next week. Sometimes in the synoptics and in John, Annas is referred to as the high priest. Sometimes Caiaphas, his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, is referred to as high priest. Now, if you are a student of the or scholar of the Old Testament, you might be saying to yourself, there can only be one high priest ever alive. And you would be right. According to the, the kind of the Deuteronomic law, you were to have one high priest appointed from the line of Aaron, <clears throat> not just a Levite, but if you go all the way back to David, you go as Zadokite, is supposed to be a high priest for life. It is an office for life until they die. And at which point, and this is this is fairly heretic, you know, um, hereditary, <clears throat> probably their son would take over, someone closely related to them would take over as high priest. Here we have many people being referred to as high priest. What's going on? This is not a contradiction. In the what we call the Hasmonean period, so if we were to go back here, um, <clears throat> woo, trying to trip over my stuff. We'll go all the way back. We'll say to about, you know, <clears throat> you know, 200, 100, you know, AD. You have to remember, after the return from the Babylonian exile, the Jews were in chaos. The, the Zadokite lineage of the high priest was ended with the Babylonian exile. And now the people are trying to put themselves back together and put the pieces back together. What happens during the period here is that the Greek tyranny happens. Again, it's a whole long thing. This is where we celebrate Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, but it's around what's called the Hasmonean Revolt or the Maccabean Revolt. This family of, of people who are warriors first and call themselves priests second, who are not Zadokites, <clears throat> take over essentially in a military coup and rule Jerusalem. And they put themselves 
in charge of being the high priests. But what happens from this period on is the high priest is not for life. It is an appointment. Either a lot of people just keep dying very quickly because there's all this armed insurrection, but also you can be replaced. And by the time of the Roman occupation, which starts in around the 60s BC, the Romans start appointing the high priest. Why? The high priest is the ruler of the religious people of the Jews. They, they are like literally the key to controlling the Jewish people. The Romans take over the ability to be able to appoint the high priest themselves. This causes so much friction in the Jewish community, but one of the, the drawbacks is that <clears throat> they often fire the high priest. Annas was the high priest much earlier in the century, and he is fired by Rome. And in his place, eventually, I think something like five of his own children at one point through this revolving door are appointed high priest and then fired. And then at one point, even his son-in-law, who is married to his daughter, is, is the high priest. The time of Jesus' trial, that is Caiaphas. So it's not wrong to say Annas was the high priest and Caiaphas was the high priest. There was probably two or three other people called high priests around at that time as well. But the person who was technically functioning as high priest in Rome's eyes was Caiaphas. <clears throat> I think it's important to, to, and this is something a lot of people don't really realize, is how this, this whole process of, of the trials work back then. First, keep this in mind. In Judea, in the first century, a trial was before a judge or before the Sanhedrin, but the judge never asked the criminal to testify. Why wouldn't a judge ask the, the, the accused to testify on their own behalf? Not guilty. They're never going to say they're guilty. Why even bother? That's their logic back then. Okay? So it was, it was the custom and the rule that you don't ever ask the accused anything. You ask the witnesses. The witnesses, you would say, and who were the witnesses you would usually pull into trial here, into court? People that don't like the accused. <laughs> and, 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 and generally, what do you mean by family? People's closest to him. Okay. I like to believe that too. <laughs> I don't. I like to believe that too. I think what I think what usually happens is people of high standing are called in the community to testify. Now, if they're part of their family, they would they would certainly be be I was, called. I was biased by the account here. Thank you. I assume it's John. The other disciples. We'll get to that in a second. That's a good point, actually. That's a good point, actually. We'll get to that. Um, that is a good point. Hold that thought. There, what do you see is happening here? They're not calling witnesses. Not yet, anyway. They're not yet calling witnesses. They are directly interrogating Jesus. What is Jesus responding with? What is he saying? He's like, I've been out. Not hiding anything. I've been talking right in front of you. So why are you asking what I talked about when you know everything I talked about? Why don't you do this the right way and call witnesses? <laughs> Jesus himself is saying, why don't you follow your own rules? Why? Because if you ask the people who have been with me, they will tell you. I have said nothing in secret. There is no secret insurrection going on here. There is no secret attempt to take over the Roman Empire, right? At least through armed rebellion. He's like, there will be through spirituality. Surely they know what I said. <laughs> 
And when they said this, one of the officials struck him in the face. Look, folks, humans are humans. They were humans 2,000 years ago. When someone tells you something you don't want to hear and is truth, what are you going to do? And you don't like it? Ooh, it makes you angry. Oh, it makes your blood <laughs> boil. Facebook. Mm, right? People say things that in some ways might cut you because you disagree with them, but you know in your heart sometimes what they're saying is true. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to punch them in the face. And they did. They punched him in the face, dude. The other thing you've got to remember here is the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin here. Sanhedrin. This is, this is 70 of the most <coughs> elite, wise, elder men of the Jewish faith who are in charge of, of the Jewish faith. They're in charge of the Jewish religion and the Jewish people. They rule in what is essentially a civil court. If you want to think of it this way, this is like a civil court. <clears throat> but it is a, this, is a, this is the high court for the Jews, right? They got to control who gets to go to synagogue or who gets to come into the temple. They got to essentially say who gets to participate in our community and who doesn't. People are very afraid of the Sanhedrin because they can decide basically that your life is over. They don't, have, they don't have the right to kill you if you're a Jew. Remember, that is reserved only for Gentiles who violate basically the inner parts of the temple. They had the right to kill you. It was the only reason they could in inflict the death penalty. They were not allowed to kill Jews for any other reason or any Jew for a reason. 70 plus the high priest. <clears throat> they had laws that said you cannot have a trial at night and you cannot have a trial without a quorum of Sanhedrin members here. We are fairly certain that there is just a handful of the worst of the worst in Annas' home in the middle of the night. Folks, this is an illegal trial, even by the Jewish law. It is illegal. So they've already violated two things. What else does it say? Annas sent him... So they couldn't get anything out. Basically, they're trying to get something out of him. They're trying to get him to admit. Say all the things that we want you to. You can, you can read about, they send him to Caiaphas the high priest. Now, <clears throat> as soon as we skip you know, and start reading the next part, that trial is over. That trial in front of Caiaphas was more of an authorized trial. Still, like in the wee hours of the morning, in front of a quorum of the Sanhedrin. And that, if you want to know about it, you read the synoptics and they'll tell you all about it. That's where Jesus is literally on trial for his life. And they question him and he's basically like, I ain't saying nothing. And they basically get him to say, yes, I am the son of God, right? And that's when they tear their clothes and they, and they say, we're going to kill you, mother, right? That's where they finally get him. They finally get him and they, and they decide at that point they cannot kill a man based on his religious beliefs. What can they get Rome to kill him for? <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, Rome was the most powerful country on earth for a reason. That reason was they had the strongest military in the world at the time, and they knew that if you presented any threat to the empire, meaning you were trying to raise some kind of rebellion against them, they would kill you. I mean, it wasn't even like, <laughs> these are one of those trials that would happen. Are you raising an army? Kill, or, you know, they'll just kill you anyway. Um, <clears throat> Rome is not going to put up with this. The, Jew, the Jewish leaders know this. 
They can't get Jesus killed because he is a religious leader. They know that. The only way they can convince Rome to do this, and look, Rome was, you know, you say Rome was un unfair. It was fairly fair in this point. They didn't just go around indiscriminately killing men, women, and children for no reason. I mean, <clears throat> they, they saw themselves as morally upright, if you can believe that. They had to have a good reason. So the, the leadership says, we're going to get him on charges of being a treasonous insurrectionist. We're going to get him to say, he's king of the Jews. What did every king <laughs> of the first century do? They led their own people through armed revolt. And the Jews had a big history of this. So they knew that they could get him on this. That leads us to the trial before Pontius Pilate. Verse 28, now we're going to read the rest of this and we'll have some time here for feedback. <clears throat> Verses 28 to the end, which is 40. Who would like to read that for me? Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. <clears throat> then therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered in again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate <clears throat> answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he, said, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I want you to know that Pontius Pilate had a terrible relationship with the Jews. <clears throat> he was appointed as a Roman governor. He was not a Jew. He had a terrible relationship. He rules for about 10 years. And I, th I think this is important, too, to remember that after Herod the Great dies, and say what you will about Herod, he was a terrible human being. Um, <clears throat> He caused a lot of strife. He had his members of his own family killed because he thought they were plotting against him. So it's very easy to see that he would see the, the children of Bethlehem as an equal threat and may have them slaughtered too. <clears throat> After he dies, the control that he has over Judea really kind of starts to fall apart. After that, um, one of his sons, I think it was Archelaus, is, is appointed as kind of the ruler, the Tetrarch, meaning one of the four regions of Judea. He's a terrible ruler. They get rid of him. And then they decide they're done with, <clears throat> with kind of, you know, what I would call in air quotes, Jews ruling Judea, because this is a very hotbed of activity. They put a Roman governor in charge. 
basically every Roman governor from then on out is worse every, every year. Every Roman governor they get is, is more corrupt, is, is, has a much worse relationship with the Jewish people, and it really kind of ends with the Jewish-Roman War in which Jerusalem is completely obliterated in 70 AD. They're on the path to this here. You can see, you can read, the author is, you can, it, the, 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 the acerbic acrimony that, that Pilate has with the Jews is very apparent. <laughs> so Pilate comes out and asks them, what charges are you bringing against this man? Well, if he were not a criminal, why would we hand him over to you? Well, that's you know, kind of an a-hole thing to say first, right? And the very next thing he says is, well, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, blankety-blanks. You know? Right off the bat, you can see there is a very, very toxic relationship here. Okay, <clears throat> But they can't. They cannot execute a fellow Jew. They don't have that right. And, and, he, and maybe Pilate at this point is just thinking, you're just going to kick him out of the synagogue. Or um, you're going to take his, his, you know, his valuables away from him. They don't even care. He's probably not even thinking they want him dead at this point. But, but here you say they, they mount their, you know, kind of their objections. Again, noted in the Synoptic Gospels. <clears throat> Pilate's like, dude, this isn't even my deal, dude. I'm here for Passover. I'm here to, like, you know, pretend to be the friend of the Jews. This is, this is the day of the Passover meal. The Passover meal, we think, and again, there's some controversy here, whether it was a Thursday or a Friday, the day before or the day of Passover, that evening when sun sets, that, we think, is the night when the Passover meal will be eaten. That is a huge day, right? Pilate probably has a whole, you know, it's like, it's like politicians today. He probably had a whole schedule full that day of, like, events to go to. He doesn't want to deal with this. He's like, what are you doing? And he sees no reason to attack him. Now, I said Pilate is in town for the Passover. Guess who is also in town for the Passover? Our good friend, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Herod Antipater. Herod in place of my father. He's there too. And he's probably in the Hasmonean Palace. Because remember, this is a little bit, this is a lot less cool than the Herod's palace. He's going to be, he's going to be stuck here for the night, right? Herod Antipas is our man who killed John the Baptist. Okay? So already there's this guy in town who already has a history with this sect of believers. Herod Antipas is in charge of Galilee. That is where he is ruled. Why did Pilate send Jesus to Herod? It's like, I'm going to send him to Herod and let him deal with it. Because he didn't want, he didn't want it on his hand. That's partially it, I, I think. think. I think the funny part of this, they were willing to break the rules yeah. to have that night trial. None of them were willing to break the rules to kill him. Well, and what would that mean? That would mean they're, that the Rome would get... Now Rome would be all up in their face about, yeah. you can't do that. It shows you that they're no different than we are. Yes. We're very pragmatic. Yes. We have this horizontal view hmm? of how things work. We don't think about, you know, Jesus' kingdom was out yes. of the vertical line of thinking. Every, they're all sitting here thinking on this horizontal oh. plane. We're no different today. Mm-hmm. We're not any better than these guys. Yep, yep. Yeah. Jesus was from Galilee, too. So this is the key. This is the key. That's your guy. And, and I think he's kind of pawning it off, too. He's like, let me find a way to not have to do this. Ah, yes, Herod's in town, my old buddy. No, he hated Herod. I'm going to send him to Herod and let Herod deal with him. Also, he had a terrible relationship with Herod Antipas. He's like, I'm going to saddle this guy with this now. <laughs> Pilate is such a jerk. I love it. But he's smart. But he Pilate is smart. By his wife not to be, to, 
I mean, I don't know if it was before yeah. or after mm-hmm. he said it, I don't remember, mm-hmm. but his yeah. wife even told him, you don't want to be a part of this. Why? You don't want, Why did she, she say had, She had a dream yes. and knew that Jesus was Jesus. And what, what are dreams in the first century to people? Visions. Very powerful visions. You do not ignore it. I had a dream last night I was flying. I just want to say I love those dreams. <laughs> very, I remember those. They're very powerful. He's like, I'm going to pawn him off on that guy. It's his problem. He sends him to Herod. Now, Herod, you have to remember, has this really long history with John the Baptist. Herod Antipas was a fan of John the Baptist. You have to remember, he started out like, I want to hear this guy. He's saying some really important things. At one point, though, John the Baptist gets really upset that Herod um, marries the divorced wife of his brother and says, you're going to be condemned for that. He throws him in jail, but he still doesn't kill him. He still doesn't kill him. Because I think, and this is my belief, that he was a huge fan of his. He wanted to hear him, and he was afraid of killing him. I think there was some truth to that. Herod understood what John represented and and was afraid of him. But he has him killed because of his wife and, and his wife's daughter, Salome. And you know that whole story about, I want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And he says, I promised her, so now I have to do it. Well, after that happens, again, this is my belief. I think Herod was really scared in some ways. He's like, I just had to kill the guy that I feared and maybe respected to some degree. I threw him in jail and I killed him. When he hears about stories of Jesus in the months and, and year following John's death, what does he think has happened? Yes, he thinks John the Baptist has come back to life. And oh my gosh, if you are a pagan of the first century and you think the dude came back, it's just like a zombie movie, folks. <laughs> Who is the first guy he's going to come for? This explains a lot of Herod's, uh, I believe this explains a lot of Herod's whole attitude at the trial of Jesus. First, he probably doesn't even know about this until Jesus shows up at his door because there's no phones. All of a sudden, the the temple guards show up. Jesus is there and they go, this is Jesus of Nazareth. What do you think Herod did? (laughs) (laughs) What? Who? He's like, where's Pilate? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where's Pilate? Get Pilate, quick! Oh, Pilate, send him over here. Oh, that son of a... (laughs) Now he's thinking, okay, all right, give me my robes, right? And he gets his robes and he comes out, hi, Jesus, how's it going, (laughs) right? (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Hey, perform a magic trick for me. Literally, this is what he says. Hey, perform a magic trick for me. (laughs) Get him out, right? What does Jesus do? He goes, are you... Are you Jesus of Nazareth? Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Have you come to start an armed rebellion? What does Jesus do this entire time? He doesn't say one word to him. He doesn't send one word to him. What is Herod thinking? He's like, oh, crap. Uh, He's not saying anything. What are we going to do? I mean, him putting John in prison was protection because if too many people Mm -hmm. started listening to John the Baptist, he's just going to lose his holiness. People were going to stop respecting him because Mm -hmm. John the Baptist was right. And, and I think Herod he knew would, that. And yep. he, it I was think self-preservation. Knew that. And I think that's why his wife and her daughter wanted his yep. head, was because they knew he was a threat. He knew, they knew he was a threat to his, their husband, who was afraid of him. And exactly. like I said, knew truth and was convicted yeah. by it. In the end, Herod basically says, well, he won't perform a magic trick, so sorry, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make any decision. This is, this is Pilate's problem, because it's Jerusalem. Have a nice day, Jesus. Okay, get him out, get him out, right? And that's it, that is it. 
And he goes back, again, this is like, whoop, whoop, he's like this. He goes back to Pilate. He goes back to Pilate. Now, what do you think Pilate thought when he saw Jesus coming back? He's like, oh, blank. <laughs> you've got these two complete losers, and you've got, and you've got Annas, and Ky- you've got all these losers sitting around looking at each other like, God, this sucks. Why? Why isn't he dead yet, right? Well, the thing is, is like, Pilate's whole job is just to keep peace. Yeah. Bring money to Rome mm-hmm. and keep the peace. Yeah. So we don't have to spend money on this stupid yep. place. And then you, he has these Jews who are always yeah. trying to cause trouble. They are all a thorn in my side, time. dude. And yep. he's like, I'm just trying to keep the peace. And so a lot of times we are just like, or if we just ignore stuff, or mm-hmm. we just like listen to people and they get it out, then it'll all go away. <laughs> and he's yep. like, Oh, it's not going away. These yeah. It's not so going away. Now, I will give Pilate this. Again, Pilate, you know, basically ordered the crucifixion of our Lord. Uh, obviously a very horrible human being. I will give this to Pilate. He is a thoughtful person. What the, what the New Testament records of Pilate's words are, I say, thoughtful. He is a very reasoned, thoughtful man. He has this amazing discussion with Jesus, trying to reason it out. He's like, <clears throat> where are we here? He's like, <clears throat> I think, and I think the end of verse 38 is where Jesus is sent to Herod. He comes back. Verse 39 picks it back up after he comes back. He's like, but, he, he, so he goes to the Jews. He doesn't even talk to Jesus. He's like, isn't it the custom for me to release one? Pr-? He's like, I got to get out of this. I, I'm going to release a prisoner uh, during the Passover. I, I, maybe I'll just, you know, do you want me to release king of the Jews? Because we've got some pretty bad people that we're about to execute today, and it's going to be a pretty fun thing. You know, I'm looking forward to that at, you know, 9 o'clock. It's going to be great. <clears throat> they shouted back. What did they say? What did the people of Jerusalem say to Pilate? No, don't release him. Just one week earlier, these same people had welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem as their king. But what kind of king did they think they were welcoming? And guess what? This is, they're, they're probably thinking the same thing Peter did. What the blank has happened? If he's our military ruler, and I just, look, dude, I had to go get palm leaves, and they're not cheap, and I had to put them down in front of him, right? And I spent a week a week's salary on, you know, glitter, because I was so happy he was here, and now this is not the guy we thought he was. Now, when he's not the guy you think he is, now what's your, your emotion going to be? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. He fooled me. He fooled me. And now the people have turned on him. Crucify him. Crucify him. The tables have completely turned. There's two-time winners here in their minds by forcing this to happen. Clearly, where are we at here? AD, AD 30? We're going to have 40 years we're going to finally have the explosion happen, right? So if he's not going to act on my timeline, uh, maybe I can force it. And yes, if we can yes. kill, kill him, maybe he'll be forced into an action, mm. right? I mean, okay. so clearly they're, they, they, they also believe they've got nothing to lose here. Mm. He's, he's got, got an army somewhere that'll come and save him. There you go. I, I, think I don't fair. want to wait another 10 years. I think years. that's I fair. I want to fight now. In fact, oh, wait a minute, I got a sword, right? We already had one guy that had a sword. Mm-hmm. I want to fight now. I want to wait 10 years. 
final thoughts, in, you know, impressions, questions. <clears throat> this is a lot. Were you going to say something about John knowing the high priest? Um, <laughs> that's so. <clears throat> doesn't say John. It again. This is a big long thing. Um, Mark does this. John does this. They don't refer to themselves. You have to remember when the Gospels are written, they're typically written in periods where the, the Roman Empire is persecuting Christians. They're certainly persecuting leaders of the Christian sect because they think they're responsible for a lot of the problems in the Jewish community. The author of the book of John does not refer to himself as John. This is an anonymous book. All four Gospels are anonymous, folks. They do not list the name of the author. But you go, oh, look, the name John is at the top, Brian. No, that was added later, maybe hundreds of years later. The author of this book says, now, um, let's see here. Jesus, thank you. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Now, why the heck wouldn't the author say what that disciple's name was? They always list the name of the disciple. In the book of Mark, Mark at the exact same moment, actually, a young man the is following Jesus, and the, and the guards try to seize that young man, and they grab his, um, his linen cloak, and he runs off, and the cloak comes off, and he runs off naked. And the author of the book of Mark says that young man ran away, but doesn't say what his name is. And the church fathers almost immediately after said, that was John Mark, the guy who wrote that gospel as a young man. So we are fairly certain that John the apostle is the disciple who accompanied Jesus and Peter to the temple. Why would John get access to the temple and to the high priest? If that is him. The follower knew the high priest. How would you know the high priest? Is he related? Well, <clears throat> there's two possibilities here, at least. One is that, and I think there's support for both, John was from an affluent, prominent family that had some kind of connection to the Sanhedrin. There's no way you can just walk into the Sanhedrin and say, hey, you know, it's like today. Walk in and say, hey, Donald, I'm here in the White House, right? And they're like, come on in, bro. That doesn't happen to you and me. That happens to people who know Donald, okay? The second thing might be what Ken got at. And this is, this is a very interesting thing. At the crucifixion of Jesus, it is mentioned that, <laughs> long story short, one of Mary, the mother of Jesus' sisters, was there, and her son may have been John, the apostle. If John is the son of a sister of Mary of Nazareth, what does that make John and Jesus? Cousins. They may have had a relationship. It is not clear, and I don't want to say something that isn't true, but there is a possibility there was some relationship. If a person who is physically related to the man who is being put on trial shows up, what are you going to do? This is what you said earlier. Let it, I want to hear this guy. Oh, you're, you're, you're a relationship of Jesus? Come on in and tell me what you know, right? Come on in. So that's what I was getting at there. What other questions do you have? I found it interesting that <clears throat> if that was John, he went to the door, the gate, and he said, "He said, hey, let my buddy Peter in." Yeah. And so obviously Peter knew, you know, was associated, and he immediately comes in and goes, "No, no, no," you know. Uh -huh. After he was just let in. Yeah. Then he says, "No, I don't know these people." 
found that very interesting. And I assume, I'm going to assume that Peter was ready to go rally the troops too. Mm. Don't, don't <clears throat> chain me up. Mm -hmm. I got things to do. Okay. Possibility, I guess. Mm -hmm. Many possibilities. This, you guys get a goal. This was one of our more intense ones. It's not always like this, by the way. I just want to say, it this is a- It is always like this. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us. Any final thoughts before we, we say goodbye today? Um, it's weird how Jesus says, you're the one saying I'm a king, you know, but, they, but that he's saying like, but this is why I came to the world to tell people the truth. And so he's basically saying that, yes, I am the king. And then Pilate's like, what is truth? And he's like, then he's like, oh, I've had nothing against him. Mm -hmm. But it's like Jesus just kind of told you that he does have a kingdom. And I don't know. That just seems contradictory. Mm -hmm. Well, he said it wasn't worldly, though. Yeah. Like, he said it wasn't of this world. So, he, I mean, if it's not of this world, then it's not a threat. <laughs> you know, if he has some kingdom in the sky, then it's not going to threaten Rome, so it wouldn't be a threat to him. One final thing, I want to make a, what is, who is, who is Barabbas from the text? Who is Barabbas? A robber. Lace days, a robber, a thief, maybe an insurrectionist, someone who's done some very bad things in Rome's eyes. Mm -hmm. What happens to Barabbas? Does he end up getting crucified? Why? What happens? That was who they released instead of Jesus. He was released. He was freed but his from, from death. his followers were a big part of that crowd. I mean, it says that in one of the other yeah. Think chapters. of this. Yep. Where I'm going with this is this. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for your sins. You were let off the hook. Jesus paid the ultimate price for what you should have gone to the cross to bear. Barabbas in Hebrew and Aramaic means son of the father. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think, um, I think when I read this, I tend to get angry, you know, at the Jews and at the Romans and everybody for not, you know, for what they did to Jesus. And I forget that it would have never happened had it not been the plan. And none of these people did anything they weren't supposed to do or expected to do. I mean, it's really hard not to get angry, though. <laughs> I'm sure a mix of emotions follow, follow all of us. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.